Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, your host, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Usually, I now say each month we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies, but as our more regular listeners may have noticed, it's been a little bit more than a month. But not to worry, my master's thesis is just about done, and I have a stack of awesome new titles ready to go, so stay tuned. Today, I'm thrilled to say we have Amy Lone Tree, Associate Professor of History at UC Santa Cruz and a citizen of the Ho-Chunk Nation. She's the author of a phenomenal new book, Decolonizing Museums, Representing Native America and National and Tribal Museums. It's just out from the University of North Carolina Press as part of the First Peoples New Directions in Indigenous Studies publishing series. I've been going to museums for really as long as I've been going anywhere. As a child, I lived just a few blocks from the American Museum of Natural History in New York, which was a place of wonder for me. The winding, padded ramps and arteries of the Gems and Minerals Wing, that giant blue whale suspended over the Hall of Ocean Life, the Tyrannosaurus Rex, and that bronze statue of the great Theodore Roosevelt atop his horse led gloriously westward to manifest destiny by a proud, compliant Indian. Museums can be as painful as they are magical, especially for Native people. From the plunder of cultural artifacts and human remains, bodies, thousands of them, to racist representations of disappearance and primitivity, museums are deeply implicated in colonialism. But as Amy Lonchley powerfully proposes, it doesn't need to be that way. Over the past decades, from reservations to the nation's capital, tribal people have claimed these once-distant spaces, forging new relationships, and have begun to put these aloof institutions to the task of sovereignty, survivance, and perhaps even decolonization. Amy Lonetree tells us how it's happened and where to go from here. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Amy Lonetree, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. Hi, Andrew. Thank you for asking me. My pleasure. So today we're discussing your wonderful new book, Decolonizing Museums, Representing Native America in National and Tribal Museums. Uh, It's just out from the University of North Carolina Press, uh, part of the publishing initiative First Peoples, New Directions in Indigenous Studies, which is a really wonderful uh, consortium that we're featuring a lot on this program. Uh, Before we dive into the, the really rich and fascinating material here, I'm hoping you can, you know, first introduce yourself to our listeners to, and tell us how you came to write this book. In particular, I'm curious, um, you know, the first thing you state in the introduction is that museums can be very painful sites for Native people. So I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, what brought you to write this book and take on, uh, you know, these institutions? Right. Well, I'm an enrolled citizen of the Ho-Chunk Nation of Wisconsin, And I'm currently an associate professor of history at the University of California, Santa Cruz. 
And um, this topic really, I think, combines my interests in museums and wanting to bridge my professional work experience in museums and also my academic training in Native American history. I have a bachelor's degree in history from the University of Minnesota and a master's degree in the social sciences from the University of Chicago, a master's degree in history from Indiana University, and a PhD in ethnic studies from UC Berkeley. Well, as you can tell, I went to several yeah. schools and, and spent some time in school. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and and um, took a break in between. Yeah graduate programs. And in the mid-1990s, I worked at the Minnesota Historical Society in the Twin Cities. And that experience was incredibly transformative. I had an opportunity to work on community collaborative exhibitions that MHS was developing. The first was one that actually focused on my tribal community, the Ho-Chunk Nation of Wisconsin. In um, 1993, they opened an exhibition entitled Minnesota Communities, and one of the communities that they featured in the exhibition was the Ho-Chunk. Now, when people think of the indigenous tribes of Minnesota, they don't typically think of the Ho-Chunk. They think of the Anishinaabe or they think of the Dakota. But the exhibition development team wanted to to feature the Ho-Chunk because we did have a historic presence in the state. And so I was hired in um, the summer of 1993 um, as an exhibit researcher. And I worked closely with Ho-Chunk elders in developing exhibition content. And I also conducted archival research focusing on the period of our presence in Minnesota, but really, you know, kind of a 19th century history of, of the treaty and removal period. So it was an incredibly fascinating experience, and I and I was hooked. So a year later, I took a break from graduate school and um, signed on to work as an exhibit researcher uh, with the Mille Lacs Indian Museum Project. And that formed the basis of one of the chapters in the book, that experience. And so what I was really interested in doing when I returned to graduate school is to explore what I learned in the museum world. I mean, while... The literature, you know, uh, discussed this new museum theory and practice that was occurring in the profession. I had an opportunity based on this work experience to see it on the ground. And so I really wanted to make sense of that experience. Um, and And I explored it initially in my dissertation and then dramatically change things, included new museums and cut out um, an earlier museum that I featured. Mm. Um, and, and that's how I came to write this book. Mm. Did, you, did you go to many museums growing up? I mean, what was your relationship to uh, museums before you started your, your scholarly work? I was always really interested in museums. Um, like many academics, I was a bookworm as a kid. Mm-hmm. And there was a <laughs> a, um, a series called the Bessie Tacy series in Minnesota that focused on life in turn of the century Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And I was always fascinated um, with history. And so my parents on various vacations would take us to different museums. And as we were approaching Thanksgiving, I was actually thinking about this. When I was a kid, we'd go down there. My mother's family are all from Chicago. Mm. And every Thanksgiving, we would go down to Chicago, and my aunt, aunt and uncle were there, always hosted us, and I would just beg them to take me to the Field Museum. Oh, yeah. I went there as a child. My, my whole family is from Chicago as well, actually. <laughs> right, yeah, right. So I went to the Field Museum many times, yeah. 
<laughs> and my uh, my aunt and uncle lived in Chinley Park, mm-hmm. and they were in the suburbs. And my uncle was very busy with work, but every every time we were down there, I would beg my uncle, I'd beg my parents, take me down to the. I want to go see the Field Museum. I was always fascinated by it, so I was really interested in museums as a kid. And my parents supported that. Um, again, you know, when we think about now, again, this was the 1970s and 1980s. The types of ex- exhibitions that I encountered are very different to mm. the de- than the types of exhibitions that we see today. Mm. These were very object-based exhibitions. We, you know, really didn't see, they were um, very much curator-controlled. And what I mean by that is that it was always from the curator's perspective. They were not multivocal. You didn't hear native voice as you went through these galleries. And a lot of them, again, had the dioramas. Um, mm. you see, you know, Absolutely. native yeah. people in, you know, in near dinosaurs and other extinct animals. They also had cases filled to overflowing with objects such as basketry and arrows. And even in the case of the field museum, sadly, I remember seeing, um, a case with scalps in it, which wow. has now since been taken off display, but these were, but they were still really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to undergraduate at the University of Minnesota, I had an opportunity to um, uh, go to Washington, D.C. on an internship um, with the Smithsonian's Museum of American History in 1988. And that was an amazing experience. I worked with Dr. Raina Green. And at that point, and I talk about this in the book, as a young intern, I was kind of swept up in the conversations regarding the possibility of the National Museum of the American Indian. And of course, all of the conversations around that this museum would be the so-called museum different, mm. that would have a long history of gross misrepresentations of Native American history and culture in museums, um, and that this type of the National Museum of the American Indian has the potential to really change that. So I've always been interested in museums. I worked at, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the Minnesota Historical Society, and that's included in my book. My experience is working as an exhibit researcher. Um, in the mid-1990s on the Mille Lacs India Museum. I also did a brief stint for six months at the uh, British Museum, and that was a very interesting, that was actually included in my dissertation, but sadly, as I transformed the dissertation into a book, I had to, to leave that material mm-hmm. out. It just didn't fit with the overarching sure. through line or narrative of this book. And then I also worked for the National Museum of the American Indian. So, you know, I've, I've spent some time working in museums, always had a great interest in museums. I think my views on museums embody what um, others have said, you know, that Native people have a love-hate relationship sure. with yeah. museums, that we love them because they have our stuff, and we hate them because we have their stuff, yeah, they yeah. Have our stuff. And, of course, we, we can't deny the influence they have in shaping the public's understanding of Native American history and culture. Sure. So you hinted at this a little bit. Um, and I, I want to spend the most of our time together talking about what you term a decolonizing museum practice. But I do think that obviously requires uh, framing the problem at hand, uh, namely why museums are so or have been so implicated in colonialism. And I know this is a long story, and you, and you lay it out in the book, um, but as best you can... I guess, you know, why why would museums, I mean, for, for our listeners who might not uh, have a background in understanding uh, the processes of colonialism, why would museums, institutions that um, people associate with wonder and learning, need to be decolonized? That's a very good question. Yes, as I mentioned before, the love-hate relationship is really key. 
um, that museums emerge in, um, in the United States in significant number at a time period that historians refer to as the nadir of Indian existence on this continent. You know, by then, you know, let's say roughly at the turn of the 20th century, there was believed to be about 250,000 American Indians alive at that time. And so the project for museums and those who worked in museums and the emerging field of anthropology is that they had to collect and gather all that they could of so-called dying races. So at this moment in time, I, always, I write about this in the book, and I know others have touched upon this before, but I really want to underscore this point, that this is a time of great suffering and loss in Indian communities. At the turn of the 20th century, the numbers speak for themselves, and people were really starving on reservations. Yet, this is the height of the U.S. government's assimilation campaign. And I know that others on the show have talked about this, but we have the Dawes allotment um, policy Your native lands are allotted. Sadly, this led to um, the rapid loss of land, um, land that tribes were guaranteed under treaties. Then we have, of course, the boarding schools where native children were taken at a very young age and separated from their family, from their kin. For in some cases, most of their childhood, they were subjected to an assimilationist um, project there, which was designed, as they say, to save the Indian and uh, or excuse me, save them, destroy the Indian and save the man. So this is an extremely painful period. And then at the same time, what's happening is that you have the field of anthropology. And at this point in time, anthropology is based out of museums, okay? And they're interested in collecting all things Indian um, because again, we were believed to be on the road to extinction. So you see during this period, these really gross human rights violations, this collecting of Native American human remains, for example, which led eventually to the passage of the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act in 1990. But there's all of this rapid um, collecting. Now, I want to say that some, you know, that tribes have acknowledged that some of this collecting has proven beneficial in the present, but still, this is a time of great suffering and loss. Native people are told there's no place for them in American society as indigenous people, yet the objects, the material culture identifying tribal uniqueness is highly valued. Mm. And so, you know, again, during this period, we were believed to be on the road to extinction, a vanishing race. So this collecting takes place. And then the exhibitions that were developed during this period um, also reflected the mindset of Native people as a vanishing or dying race. And the exhibitions that were developed tended to reinforce the view of um, static, unchanging um, cultures. And certainly the dioramas, which many of us have have seen in natural history museums, tended to do this by depicting Native people as frozen in time or by displaying them near dinosaurs and other extinct animals. And additionally, another um, another exhibition technique that was very damaging is that objects were presented and defined by Western scientific categories, anthropological categories of manufacture and use, and not by indigenous understandings of uh, or indigenous categories of culture, worldview, and meaning. And also, um, native societies were defined by functional technology in exhibitions as well. Basically, we were only what we made. And um, also, they tended to obscure the great historical, linguistic, and um, cultural diversity that existed by dividing 
of people into cultural groups. And I know that many of us have seen these types of exhibitions, right? Where you walk into a gallery and they have the Northwest Coast section, they have the Southwest, they have, um, you know, the Eastern Woodlands, right? right? And what that does is, is really give um, visitors a sense that all tribes are the same, or at least the same within one particular region. So that really obscures, as I said, the great diversity um, that exists. Mm-hmm. And also there were... Um, Places such as the Dixon Mounds in the state of Illinois that actually displayed human remains. And I mentioned at the opening of the podcast as well, the, uh, the Field Museum having um, having scalps on display. Yeah. So this is, you know, a, a, a history that is deeply embedded in this very painful period in Native history. And this idea that Native people were on the road to extinction. You have that, that quote from Walter Ecohawk. If you desecrate a white grave, you wind up sitting in prison, but desecrate an Indian grave and you get a Ph.D. Mm-hmm. I, I know mean, that highlights it right there. Yeah, I know. It really does. And that quote is from People magazine. And I, really? I remember yeah, coming upon it in the 90s when yeah. I, I first read it. I wanted to include it in the book because I really think it summarizes yeah. um, what happened and, and this um, deep, deep um, injustice that happened. Absolutely. It's it's interesting that that quote because I it's it, I do a similar thing with my students when I'm talking about um, sports teams and logos and stereotypes. I mean, it it shows you the degree to which um, colonial ideas are embedded in American culture. That as sim- I mean, that's such a simple formulation. I mean, it would be it's so obvious to people that they wouldn't want their grandparents' graves dug up. Um, mm-hmm. But it it takes putting that alongside each other with the case uh, of of native people to to even highlight the fact that it's happened at all. Um, So moving the story ahead and when, when museums start changing a little bit, I was really, uh, I love what you term academic epiphanies uh, because you know, it's the, uh, this idea that uh, it was, it was just the the magical appearance of postmodernism in academia that changed uh, curators and, and led to, to people wanting to, you know, present a multivocal uh, exhibit, uh, but there was, in fact, a, a tremendous amount of native activism. And one of the things that led to the museum culture change is that activism. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about that in the in the you know in the seventies and eighties leading up to uh, the, mu- the the National Museum. How you know how did native people start changing uh, the culture and discourse of museums? Mm-hmm. Well, scholars have termed this period of activism as the Native American Museum Movement. And that's a phrase used by um, museum um, study scholar Patricia Pierce Erickson, um, whose work, Voices of a Thousand People, was one of the first um, studies of a tribal museum, and her work focused on the Macaw Museum. And she argues um, that this movement inspired a range of indigenous activism on many uh, issues involving museums, and Native people um, activists were involved in protesting stereotypical displays of Native American history and culture in mainstream institutions. I think one of the most well-known protest is of the Dixon Mounds. You know, I, I actually show a video in one of my uh, history classes where you see um, American Indian movement activists as well as um, individuals from the Chicago American Indian um, um, community going down to um, southern Illinois to protest 
the exhibitions. It was basically, you know, it was almost like an open burial, what was on display. And that eventually closed in the early 1990s. But when I was an undergraduate at the University of Minnesota, I remember the Dixon Mounds um, controversy and many people being up in arms. And it's amazing to think that as late as the early 1990s that we still had Native American human Mm -hmm. remains on display. But that is one, again, one very high profile example, but there were many others. And I also want to back up for a moment and say that that Native people did protest um, early collecting and the excavation of of burials before this period. Mm -hmm. But it's really during this period where we see um, a significant increase in the activism. And also part of this is Native people begin protesting the collecting display and holding of American Indian human remains. Um, Again, the national, uh, excuse me, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act passes in 1990, and it happens after significant activism on the part of Native communities and the leadership of someone like Walter Echohawk, who was working with the Native American Rights Fund at this time. So there's discussions that are going around, um, and people are, are, you know, basically finding out how many Native American human remains were in museums during this period. And we were basically the archaeological resources of the United States of America. Mm-hmm. And so, again, prote- uh, protesting the, the collecting and the holding of those remains is significant. And also during this people uh, period, excuse me, Native people begin to recognize that if we are going to change museums and their colonizing practices, or their colonial practices, we must have people enter the museum profession and try to change it from the inside. So you see um, Native people entering the profession, attending, um, you know, programs, training programs that the Smithsonian was offered and offering in the 70s and 80s. And so you begin to see Native people entering into the profession. And then you also have Native people beginning to challenge the authority that Western museums um, held in terms of challenging the authority of Western museums to represent Native communities. Um, again, this before this, uh, you know, groundswell of activism, you really see curated, controlled types of exhibitions, and you're not getting a sense of the meaning of the objects from a Native perspective. And so they really challenge the exclusion of Native voice and perspective in museums. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, is the repatriation movement that happens that culminates in the passage of, of NAGPRA. So um, we also, during this period, and one, one of the most significant um, cases that led to um, this change in museum practice happened in Canada, where the Kwakwakiwa people in a much publicized event um, we're able to um, uh, to um, res- to gain their collection, or actually, they were able to challenge the Canadian government to return um, a collection of objects, ceremonial objects that were taken in the 1920s. It's called the Cramner Potlatch Collection. During this period, um, the potlatch was um, outlawed in Canada. And the U and the Canadian government moved in to um, at a ceremony. Um, it was, the person was uh, Dan Cramner, and they confiscated the objects, arrested people that were there, and in order for the people to avoid jail sentences, they had to surrender the objects to Canadian authorities. Those objects eventually ended up in various museums. And in the um, 1980s, the Kwakwakiwa community was very successful in um, in the return in um, in pushing for the return of the, of that collection, and eventually they established two tribal museums in their community. 
Um, the you missed a cultural center, which is still uh, with us today and a very important site. So um, another, I think, important um, moment as well was when in the United States, we begin to see um, tribes recognizing that um, museums, while we have a very complicated and difficult and challenging history with museums, that they could potentially, and I say, I want to emphasize potentially, be places that could support economic development enterprises in our communities. Now, what we have since learned is that actually museums are not income generators. They're actually, they can drain money from a community. Yeah. Museums are very, very expensive. Mm. And um, I once heard a a native uh, museum studies um, scholar say that there are two tri types of tribes in the United States, those that have a tribal museum and those that want a tribal museum. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so tribes are very interested in this. Sure. And there seems to be this idea, certainly early on in the 70s, that museums could serve as income generators. But again, we found that not to be the case, but still that led to tribes um, you know, questioning the potential of having museums in their community. And also, which is part of this, is that they recognize that it's important to control the history, uh, the representation of their history and culture, that tribal museums could be important sites of indigenous self-representation. So they're interested, again, in thinking about the possibility of museums. And since then, you know, we have seen some large scale projects that have been completed over the last um, several years. And the Mille Lacs Indian Museum, while it's a hybrid tribal museum, I think is part of that as well in that shift. So um, tribes, you know, as I, as I mentioned, it's a very, um, you know, what I emphasize in the book is that this history of the changing relationship between Native people and museums, it is important to understand that there were academic um, conversations that influenced this, such as the influence of postmodernism. However, we cannot ignore um, the role of Indigenous activism because it is really central mm. in pushing for this shift in, this, in the current relationship that we have with museums. So talking about um, representing uh, history in, in museums, in, in new tribal museums or hybrid tribal museums, I want to dig into uh, a central tension that you highlight here, which is between uh, representing genocide on the one hand, oh. telling the hard truths about uh, centuries-long Holocaust that continues to manifest in, in historical unresolved grief and trauma, and on the other hand, stories of survival, stories of courage and agency you don't argue that these are mutually exclusive at all, but you, you do feel that there's been an overemphasis on the latter, which has shortchanged uh, the need to confront the former, to confront the hard truths of colonialism and genocide. Talk a bit more about that tension and, and what course you chart, where, where you think uh, museums should go in balancing those poles. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's really the, the central question of the book is how can we begin to decolonize these institutions and what does decolonization look like from an indigenous perspective? And as I outline in the book, I think that museums have done a fine job in um, or in tribal communities as well, have done a, a great job in their museum and challenging stereotypes of Native American history and culture that are so predominant in our society. We've done an excellent job of that. And also, remember when I, I began the discussion talking about this prevailing view of tribes and Native people as a vanishing race, mm -hmm. I think by emphasizing our 20th century survival, and a major, all of our tribal museums do that, 
across the country and mainstream institutions that collaborate with native people are doing an excellent job with that. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's really wonderful to see, um, 20th century, the 20th century native American experience represented in these exhibitions. But one of the central questions have been, uh, has been for me is how, how can we move forward? What does a decolonizing practice involve? We've done a great job in these areas, but but what does a decolonizing museum practice involve? And what I what I came to is what I believe is is really central to this, is that we need to address the legacies of historical unresolved grief that persist in our communities, and that museums can be these really important forums that present this difficult and challenging history. And you're right; these are not um, mutually exclusive terms. I mean, I, I draw upon the words of. Um, uh, historian Jeffrey Shepard, where he said that, you know, colonialism and persistence can exist in the same interpretive space. And that's precisely, you know, what I emphasize as well, is that we need in order to understand what makes our survival or survivance so worthy of celebration and exhibitions, we must have the context on what made that survival so amazing, because then it would just beg the question, survival from what? And without that context, I think we're doing a disservice to our communities. And as I, and I, as I emphasize in the book, I think it's really important for us to help our communities really understand um, the forces of colonialism, the deep, our deep, this deep history and settler colonial policies um, that still affect us to this day. Without that understanding, um, I think what will happen is we will continue to see our current social problems throughout Indian country as personal failings or as problems inherent to our communities. And having that knowledge, and I have I've witnessed it certainly with some of the work that I have done with, and also I've studied, you know, a site that I think does an amazing job in terms of talking about the history of colonialism and its ongoing effects. Um, but yet also provides a healing space for their community as well. And I'm referring to the Zeebwing Center. But understanding that history can be incredibly empowering. And, and that, I think, is something that we need to provide for our communities. And that our goal of a 21st century decolonizing museum practice should be speaking the hard truths of colonialism in order to help our communities understand those legacies and move towards healing. So let's talk about some of these case studies uh, you explore in this book, starting with the Mille Lacs Indian Museum, uh, which, you know, you mentioned you have a personal connection to and you spent time working there. Set the stage for us here a little bit and talk about how that museum became what you call a hybrid tribal museum. And, and what do you mean by hybrid tribal museum? Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, um, you know, the book really uh, follows kind of in some ways my own experience in the museum world. And, and the first museum that I write about is the Mille Lacs Indian Museum, which I refer to as a hybrid tribal museum. And that definition um, actually comes from one of the oral history interviews and also um, other conversations with people there. The Mille Lacs Indian Museum is a unique place. It is on the reservation of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe in um, north central Minnesota. 
but it is um, but it is owned by the Minnesota Historical Society or the Minnesota Historical Society maintains financial and administrative control over the museum. Yet what was really interesting and what I trace in the book is that the Mille Lacs Indian uh, Museum project, the one the um, the new and revised um, or revamped museum opened in 1996. And the exhibit developers, the curatorial team that was working on the new museum, um, as well as those staff uh, folks at MHS that were involved with building the site itself, they really pursued the exhibition planning and the planning of the entire museum with the tribal museum model in mind. And so while, again, the Minnesota Historical Society maintains financial and administrative control and is part of the Minnesota Historical Society Historic Sites Network, it is located on Mille Lacs um, reservation land. And the Mille Lacs, a voice and perspective is given primacy and interpretation at that site. So as I mentioned, the exhibitions, when the planners were putting together the exhibitions, they actually went to various tribal museums, the museum at Warm Springs, museum at Warm Springs, for example, they had recently opened in Oregon. And so the exhibition development team went there and studied that museum. And, and one of the curators, Kate Roberts, that I spoke with, she said that that museum became their, their closest ally. So even though they were still, again, part of the Minnesota Historical Society, the methodology they pursued was a tribal museum methodology. And what you see in the exhibitions is first-person voice, for example. You see, um, you know, Mille Lacs tribal members talking about sovereignty um, and their the ways that they made a living. These are all first-person perspectives. And it doesn't have that distant third-person curatorial voice. It's Mille Lacs people talking about their experience. And in a recent conversation that I had with the current site manager, he said that I asked him about the status of the Mille Lacs Indian Museum, you know, as a hybrid tribal museum, and how would he define it? And he said, you know, in some ways, we're the redheaded stepchild of tribal museums, because we still have this connection to MHS, mm -hmm. the Minnesota Historical Society. But yet, this is on tribal land, and Native people, our elders, determine the content of the exhibition. So it was a it was a really unique place. Mm. And so I served as an exhibit researcher. I was hired in 1994 to, to conduct research for the galleries that involved conducting archival research on the last fan history, as well as interviewing community members. Mm. And so, yeah. yeah, pardon Sorry. me? No, it's been and it's been quite successful. I mean, and you interviewed some of the guests at the at the new museum, right? And it's and it's been a, a quite a successful transformation for, for the I, Oh, excuse me. Yes, I um, I actually looked at. I didn't. I didn't conduct any audience evaluations. Oh, okay. but I, I draw upon the audience evaluations. Um, the material that um, was at the Minnesota Historical Society. They actually hired mm -hmm. to do that. And yes, the museum. What's really fascinating about it is that it's it's very popular. Overwhelming praise for this museum. And I opened the chapter where I talk about the National Museum of the American Indian with quotes from a letter from um, Richard West who became the founding director of the National Museum of the American Indian, talking about the collaborative process at the Minnesota Historical Society and how that became an inspiration for the methodology that they would later follow at the National Museum of the American Indian. So the museum has received high praise for the quality of their exhibitions. Many, you know, um, uh, 
individuals who are interested in establishing tribal museums or people who are working just with other types of other communities have come in to study the museums representations and also talk to people about the process involved so it's a it's a very important site and my goal with the chapter was to talk about this moment in the 1990s uh, where basically what was happening at at uh, with the Minnesota Historical Society and the Mille Lacs Band of, of Ojibwe was an enactment of new museum theory into practice, and I witnessed that firsthand. I really I'm I'm fascinated by uh, the sovereignty display you talk about. Mm-hmm. Well, I just think it's it's such a, a great thing. I mean, I, I wish I could send all of my students there because it it, it just gets into the sort of brass tacks questions about sovereignty. It lays them out. You know, you have a, an exhibit that just says, you know, do treaties give Indians special rights? Does sovereignty have anything to do with casinos? Where do just dual citizenship mean? All these very practical questions about sovereignty uh, are laid out there. What was the thinking behind this? I mean, this is not something you'd necessarily expect in a museum, a historical museum. Uh, but, you know, how does it address those questions? And, and what is the, the goal of representing sovereignty uh, in this museum? Mm-hmm. Well, that became um, part one of the um, the major sections, if you will, of the of the new museum that opened in 1996. Um, during the conversations uh, with the community, um, Kate Roberts, in our later conversations, she mentioned to me that that was one of the first things that that um, advisory board of elders conveyed to her was that we are a sovereign nation. And Kate didn't really understand uh, what that meant, she told me. You know, she didn't really have a background in Native American history. She was a a very talented exhibition developer, but that wasn't her subject expertise. Mm -hmm. And so she had to immerse herself in the literature on sovereignty. And she told me later, then I realized that, oh, my goodness, you know, that that's a book. That's not an exhibit. You know, how can we make this, you know, really visitor friendly and engaging? And I think the museum is very successful in doing that. And I mentioned in the book that it's one of, you know, one of my favorite all time favorite exhibitions. Now, remember, this is, you know, 1996 when it opens. And to be honest with you, that was the first exhibition that I've ever seen that focused on sovereignty. And they do an excellent job, I think, in discussing sovereignty in a way that manifests its emotional quality for Native people, as well as, um, you know, providing that legal context. Mm. And so they have, you know, um, imagery of these objects that show, like, for example, the um, symbol of the tribal government, they have a police car door, you know, the opening text panel is just, I think, so effective in uh, in a very conversational way, talking about, as I said, both this emotional quality of sovereignty as well as it's as a legal uh, as the legal aspect of it as well. So um, they did an excellent job, and the goal with that is to was to really, I think, contextualize for the visitor um, what what was currently happening during that time, so that the visitor would have a sense of why the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe, right across the street from this museum, (laughs) have a casino, Mm -hmm. right? And also during this period, there was a major treaty rights or fishing rights case um, 
in the news. And this case went eventually uh, all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court decided in favor of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe. So there was a great deal of controversy during this period regarding um, the hunting and fishing rights of the Mille Lacs Band. And so the Community Advisory Board wanted to offer some context so people have an understanding of, again, why tribes have casinos, for example, because that certainly was something that was you know, very much, um, well, it was predominant in the news, as well as that treaty rights case. And so the um, exhibit developers really honored that request and wrestled a very, very difficult topic to the ground. And I would argue put together a wonderful, wonderful exhibition that conveys a very complex um, and, and, and challenging concept to the visitor in a way that they can retain. And I, I should emphasize as well is that a majority of the um, exhibitions in the museum focus on the contemporary experience of the Molas Band, but really the heart of the museum was this um, section called the Four Seasons Room, which was actually a seasonal diorama. And in, in, the, uh, in conversations with the community, even though some of the exhibit developers, you know, obviously very familiar with the literature on dioramas and how problematic they are in terms of how they keep native cultures frozen in time. You know, they approach these conversations with an open mind, but they were, they, they listened to the community because the community kept on saying, we have to have the um, Four Seasons room back. Obviously they wanted, mm -hmm. um, you know, it cleaned up and, and, um, and some of the mannequins that were in there that were actually cast from from living um, tribal members or tribal members um, posed for the mannequins. Um, they wanted that um, that space back, the Four Seasons room back. It was an icon place. And so, um, but the community, the exhibit development team, and I remember these conversations very well. We thought, okay, we're going to put the Four, Se the four Seasons room is going to be at the new museum. This will be a reinstallation. And conversations, you know, we around the table really focused on, well, we don't want the visitor though to think that the Malax people are locked in a historic past. We have to, you know, focus on contemporary experience. And so that's why they decided to focus on sovereignty, for example, as I mentioned. Also a section focusing on powwow, music and dance, as well as a section focused on making a living. Does the museum move um, in a sort of narrative way? I mean, is, it, is there like a path you take through the museum or can you um, go in and out of, of any exhibit when you walk in? I'm just curious because I, I'm wondering if that, if, if, you know, they wanted to keep the dioramas, but in the context of, of sovereignty and present day culture and claims and politics and government. And I'm wondering if you have to go through the sovereignty section before, you know, you can go to the the diorama section in a sense so you have the context to understand right. what you're seeing well they, i think they hope that the visitor will do that yeah um, I obviously there's no way to guarantee that but, right yeah. there's no way to guarantee that some museums are much more structured mm -hmm. i think i reminded the holocaust museum for example in washington dc that's a yeah. very structured museum going experience where you really have to begin on this one particular floor <laughs> they got to yeah. preach from the beginning and take you there. That's not what happens here, but I do want to add in terms of the Four Seasons Room that they, this is the only section of the museum, of the Malax Indian Museum, where you need a guide to enter, okay? So a visitor cannot just go into that room without a guide. Wow. 
And so they, you know, and that was designed again to offer to have, a, um, and hopefully the guide would be a Mille Lacs uh, band member. That's not always the case, but you know, and, and certainly when it first opened, they were Mille Lacs band members that gave the tour, and they would also convey that, okay, here you are experiencing life um, at pre-contact, but you know, we're still very much a part of the present, and those kind of conversations would really help provide the visitor with um information about their contemporary um experience yeah. but um yeah it's, it's the only section where you know as i said where they have a guy because again the team was keenly aware and then audience after um they studied the audience evaluations as well they were keenly aware that they wanted to make sure that people understand that this is a living vibrant culture and so, um, you know, they did take some steps to to revise um, certain uh, a, a display outside of the Four Seasons room that talked about some of the seasonal activity you would come upon in the Four Seasons room that actually this type of activity is still happening today. I'm just curious, as, a, as an aside, have you ever been to the museum in the New York State Capitol in Albany? No, I'm sorry, I haven't. Yeah, there, there's there's a, a number of dioramas, and they would uh, they they were actually created by Arthur Caswell Parker, who was a Seneca uh, anthropologist uh, in early 20th century, um, but who had a tenuous who had a conflicted relationship with his home reservations because of this uh, uh, politics that he supported. But you know, it would just I've been to that museum. It's it's right in the uh, the basement of the New York State Capitol in Albany. So you have people above it who are making all these uh, decisions that affect uh, tribal sovereignty in New York. And, and I, it, it's interesting because there's no, there's that level of context, that level of connection to uh, present day uh, issues of sovereignty is, is, is so absent from it. And, and to know that other museums are taking that up makes its absence even starker. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. No, as I mentioned, no, uh, the Mille Lacs Indian Museum is the first museum that I visited that had a display focusing on sovereignty. But since that time, some of the other tribal museums I've visited um, do touch upon sovereignty. Yeah. So you write next about uh, the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, right. D.C. Um, mm -hmm. And you, you talked a bit about the story of, of how it came to be, some of the activism that uh, led to it, but I'm just just briefly. I mean, how do we get from and it's a century long story, <laughs> recognizing that. Uh, mm -hmm. how, how do we get from a um, a acquisitive wealthy New York financier uh, with this you know, uh, you know real drive to collect every bit of Indian culture he can, George Gustav High, you know, in the early 20th century, to a, a really magnificent structure uh, right next to the Washington State Capitol? Uh, mm -hmm. How did that happen? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, as I mentioned, the emergence of the National Museum of the American Indian uh, Indian uh, is very much tied to the Native American museum movement. And um, the types of, of shifts in the museum world that we were seeing um, at the state level in places like Minnesota, um, where mainstream institutions were very involved with collaborating with tribal communities and the desire to basically have what some scholars refer to as source communities control the representation of their history and culture. I mean, that's the, you know, that's the movement that's happening um, and on the national stage. And you mentioned, you know, George Gustav High, you know, this um, insatiable collector of all things Indian, and he basically assembles in the early 20th century, one of the finest collections of Native American material culture in the world. And, you know, the history of High, other people have touched upon this, but, um, you know, his 
his, his the history of um, Hayes collecting, you know, people have said he's just this, you know, this individual uh, with this insatiable quest who just goes out and just gathers all of this material and didn't do a very good job at actually um, recording uh, information about the material and things like that. Um, you know, kind of this insatiable, this idea of this insatiable or image of an insatiable manic collector is one that emerges. But in recent years, we're beginning to understand, well, actually, no, you know, he was really interested in scholarly study related to the collection in his museum that he opened, the Museum of the American Indian, to showcase the collection. He actually hired a professional staff um, that was, you know, that, that were very, you know, that include very talented um anthropologists of the time so um you know but but one of the things that that does happen here as it does happen as elsewhere is that hayes museum eventually you know it, it hits a major financial um i mean it experiences great financial um turmoil and the collection was in grave danger and very few people were visiting the Museum of the American Indian. This is right before its rescue by the Smithsonian. So then eventually, you know, the Smithsonian comes in and rescues this, you know, this is the narrative, rescues this collection. Mm -hmm. And then the Hay collection becomes the part of the National Museum of the American Indian Collection. And as a young intern in 1988 in Washington, D.C., I was there when the conversations were going on on what would happen with the Hay collection. And I was aware of the conversations that there was a possibility of a national museum and then, you know, I returned to my undergraduate program and years later I find out that actually, you know, that, that well, when the legislation was passed, you know, that the, that goal, that dream was realized and then plans were underway. Um, and again, I'm, I'm really collapsing some really lengthy political discussion. But <laughs> yeah. Well, so, yeah, I encourage people to buy the book, you know, yeah, so yeah. this is and just so, a, a teaser, you know. So. Yeah, and then plans uh, were underway, and after some some difficult conversations with, with individuals in New York, they decided to open what would become more of a um, exhibition space, and, the, uh, and that, was, that opened in 1994, the George Gustav High Center, and then the Suitland, Maryland um, Collection Space, the Cultural Resource Center, opened in 1999, and then the third site would be the D.C. site on the National Mall, um, and that opened in um, 2004. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's talk successes and shortcomings. Um, mm -hmm. What do you like about the National Museum of the American Indian? You know, what do you think they do successfully? And, and how does it, uh, if it does, fall short of a decolonizing museum practice? Right. Well, in the book, I've, I've interviewed several people. Uh, many people actually who work there. Um, and I, what I think the DC site, and I'll just focus on the DC site sure. very well, is the process of inclusion of native voice. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, this is a period of collaboration in new museum theory and practice. Every, all of museum, not all of them, but many museums, if they're embracing um, the new museum practice, they're collaborating with source communities. And the National Museum of the American Indian for the DC site, as well as for the GGHC, did an admirable job in working with diverse tribal nations and working with individuals and bringing them to the table. 
Um, and so that was one of the areas that I think is the most impressive. But, you know, they had a superhuman task. I mean, this is a very, you know, because they were charged with representing the history of indigenous peoples of the hemisphere. And that, as we know, is an overwhelming project. Right, absolutely. And I think they did an excellent job in trying to bring in as many different communities as possible that with that hemispheric uh, scope. I think they did an excellent job there. But in terms of the shortcomings, as I mentioned in the book, um, one of the things um, that I focus on, and I've also done this uh, in previous um, publications, is the absence of a discussion of colonialism and its ongoing effects. This museum, more so, um, I think, than any other, um, emphasizes survivance, but yet doesn't provide enough context on what makes that survival so amazing and worthy of celebration. Um, in particular, you know, their section of the museum, the Art People's Gallery entitled Evidence, that um, was designed to really address the history of, of settler colonialism, um, really presents this history, and I would what I argue is a very abstract, object-driven way. They have get, uh, cases filled to overflowing with guns, swords, and Bibles. And they, they label this section the storm. And these are the three forces that tribes faced, all tribes faced. Um, and one of the things, and that is, that is true, but as we all know, there's a willed ignorance in this country really face the difficult aspects of our history. Mm -hmm. I think people have a very difficult time accepting that the United States is a genocidal nation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I argue that these abstract object-driven displays do not really connect these forces of power that led to the dispossession of native lands and attacks on native bodies. I mean, it's just far too abstract. And what I called for was a more um, direct and specific contextual information so that the visitor has an understanding when you go to the other galleries or other sections of the museum that emphasize survivance, they know, well, survival from what? They know exactly the forces that native people were up against. Mm. And so when I was working on the National Museum of the American Indian, I would just fast forward for a moment. I was giving presentations at a conference, and I'll never forget this. Oh, and another point, too, um, that I've also expressed um, as a concern previously was that um, they present um, history um, in a way that expects the visitor to be well-schooled in postmodernist theory. And I also argue that this uh, a postmodernist understanding of history is not an indigenous understanding mm -hmm. of history. Right, right. And the two get conflated very often um, right. in, in casual and yeah. in, in sort of casual discussion about. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I was giving a, a, a talk and uh, a very astute listener asked me, OK, Amy, I have two questions for you. You know, if you're critical of the way and the manner in which this particular museum, the National Museum of the American Indian, um, presents history, that it doesn't necessarily reflect an indigenous understanding of history. Um, and, you know, I was focusing on our peoples and evidence, and I was arguing that, you know, it was it reflected more of a postmodernist understanding of history. How could a tribal museum do that? Develop an exhibition that reflects 
their understanding of history and not, you know, and also too, what we see happening as well is that some museums present um, native history in this very linear format as well, which also doesn't necessarily reflect indigenous understandings of history. So how can we have, how can we develop exhibitions that reflect an indigenous understanding of history? And also if you're calling for museums to address the hard truths of colonialism, how would a museum do that? And it was, it was interesting because, you know, at that point in time, I, I didn't begin the project with the Zeebwing Center yet. And when I, I came to that project, and that um, museum is the focus of the um, third case study in the book, and I began research there in 2006, and it was really interesting because in some ways those questions were answered for me, because this is a, a tribal museum that's located on the Saginaw Chippewa Reservation in Michigan, and the exhibition is organized around the um, seven fires or seven prophecies of the Anishinaabe people. So as you're walking through the Zeebling Center of Anishinaabe Culture and Lifeways, you're not experiencing this or you're not reading this linear progression of history or of U.S. Indian relations. What they frame the exhibits according to the seven prophecies. So you're really getting a sense of Anishinaabe understanding of history. And also during the period of one of those prophecies, they foretell this prophecy foretells of this period of great suffering and separation. And that was the period of the fifth prophecy. And within that context, the museum, I think, goes farther than any other tribal museum in talking about the hard truths of colonialism. Mm. And, um, you know, you learn about alcohol being used as a weapon of exploitation. You hear the words of colonizers playing overhead in this gallery. Um, and what's, what I think is so strategic there is that, as we all know, as museum visitors, visitors as you're standing, it's very easy to walk past text panels, right? Absolutely. But the, yeah. but the visitors kind of forced to confront those words because they're playing overhead as you move through the space. Mm. And also in the effects of colonization gallery, they're also um, not afraid to talk about some of the social ills that continue to plague their community as a result of colonialism. So it was a really powerful place. So it was interesting as I left my project on the National Museum of the American Indian with these um, two questions in mind, I came upon a place that, that addresses them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things you mentioned is that uh, one of the reasons that museums have been reluctant to name colonialism, to talk about the hard truths of colonialism and genocide is, is, you know, I would imagine being uh, afraid of alienating or turning away uh, visitors who don't want to be confronted with that. How mm-hmm. has that been a problem? I mean, here you have uh, the Zeebowing Center, uh, which you say does does take on those issues, does tackle them. How has the general public that's come to visit that museum uh, experienced or received that? Yeah, that's a good question. And I asked that of many um, individuals that work there that served as tour guides. And as far as I know, and what, what's been reported to me, certainly what I've observed in all of my, uh, my visits, is that people are really open to that context. But one of the things that the Zeebling Center does so well, again, it's, it's, it's um, organized according to the prophecies. And during the period of the fifth prophecies is where they really tell these painful stories of separation of loss and separation and loss. What the Zeebling Center also does very effectively is provide a healing space. 
And when I interviewed um, the, the director, the founding director of the museum, Bonnie Ekdahl, I asked her about the development of the section called Blood Memory, because Blood Memory was one of the most innovative and interesting and very moving sections that I ever encountered in a tribal museum or a mainstream museum that collaborates with tribal communities. And I asked her about the development of, of that gallery. And she said, you know, when we were working on the exhibitions, we met with community members, we met with elders, and we would place out in the tables, you know, mock-ups of what the exhibitions would look like. And she said, I'll never forget this. One day we had this one emotional grandmother, she said, who was just crying. And she had looked at the plans for the effects of colonization section where they talk about um, the experience of Saginaw Chippewa children at the um, at the boarding school, the nearby boarding school in Mount Pleasant, and, and just the painful aspect of that history. And this grandmother started cry crying and came up to Bonnie and said, now I know why my mother did what she did. And so Bonnie then later spoke to her team and says, I think we're going to have, we may have a mental health issue here. You know, we can't have this community face all of the, or the general public face all of these really difficult stories about our past and then just leave them there, mm -hmm. right? We have to find a place or provide a place for healing. And that's how Blood Memory was born. And this section is, is very powerful. As you're standing in the um, effects of colonization gallery, you begin to hear music and a song sung by three women from the community. That's a healing song. And it kind of helps pull you forward, as I mentioned in the book, into the healing space of blood memory. And there they introduced, you know, the concept of um, blood memory, which reminds people And this section, I think, is really more for tribal members. You know, I mean, when we think about audiences for tribal museums, those that I've interviewed have talk, well, talked about wanting to make sure that the, you know, one of the intended audiences was tribal community members, but also the general public. Mm -hmm. But in the case of the Zeebling Center, I think this section in particular is really for tribal members. And this concept of blood memory, you know, is described to them as the emotions that they feel at birth. And um, that basically what I, what I find so powerful about this is recognizing that even though the Saginaw Chippewa community during this period of the fifth prophecy as a result of the effects, uh, as a result of colonization, they've been separated about not from knowledge about who they are as uh, Anishinaabe people, that it is their right to reclaim that history. And it's a really, I think, very beautiful and empowering space. And then also in that space, one of the things that they do very well in terms of their presentation of these iconic pieces of Anishinaabe art, such as bandolier bags, is that they, they you know, make the argument, and this is the only tribal museum that I've, seen, that I've seen do this, is that even though the Anishinaabe people were experiencing this time of great separation and loss, they were still able to make objects of great beauty. And so they want, you know, this case, um, and it's called Creating Beautiful Things in Difficult Time, to remind the community members about the resiliency of their ancestors. And that's also a part of their, their history as well. And so, you know, again, with objects, I've seen tribal museums try to, uh, you know, do an effective job in conveying that these art forms continue to the present. You know, like they'll have a historic piece next to a contemporary piece. But this was the first time that I had seen 
um, that connection made with these objects made during the darkest period of their history and that it speaks to the resiliency of their communities. And then also finally in the blood memory section, it's also here where you're introduced to um, the next prophecy that for that um, and is part of this next prophecy. Um, they, it foretells that Ojibwe people will begin to reclaim their culture. And then the latter half of the museum really focuses on this period of reclamation. So I've been speaking with Amy Lone Tree. She's the author of Decolonizing Museums, representing Native America in national and tribal museums just out from the University of North Carolina Press. I've taken up a lot of your time today, Amy, and I really appreciate it. But, uh, you know, as a way to, to get towards a conclusion, I'm um, wondering if you can talk a bit about the reception uh, you think this work will get in the curatorial world or in the world of uh, Native studies and where you th see things headed. Are you optimistic about the future of tribal and national museums and their representations of Native America? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I really hope the goal of this book is to um, really advance the dialogue on what a, a decolonizing museum practice involves. And I, I've heard this from several people before, that one has to write the book before you really understand what you were arguing. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> that before. Yeah. But I really, um, what I recognize as I was looking through this again, that really one of my central goals is to have this book be of service to our communities as well. I am hoping that it makes a contribution to the museum field, museum anthropology, public history, you know, again, that we can push beyond uh, push the boundaries of what a decolonizing museum practice involves but really what i hope this book does is gives an opportunity to tribes to really think about how we want to present our history and culture um, that's really important to me because i've participated in events i've also seen as in you know and studied places that really address um, the effects of colonization and understanding that history can be incredibly empowering for our communities. And I wanted my book to provide, you know, kind of an opportunity for dialogue around that issue. I hope in the future that when tribal museums make, uh, tribal leaders make their decisions regarding exhibitions in their museums, that they do not shy away from talking about this difficult history. That the kinds of things that I've heard in the past that, oh, well, we don't want to offend visitors, or we don't want to hang our dirty laundry out to dry, or we don't want to keep Native people and our story mired in the horrors of victimization or emphasize the horrors of victimization. I hope that those conversations, I hope this will be an interjection in those conversations and that we can recognize that no, in speaking the hard truths of our history and talking about the history of, of colonialism, naming genocide, that having this knowledge can be very beneficial for our communities in the future. And I know you just, you just finished the book. Uh, and it's a, quite an achievement, uh, but I, I do always like to ask at the end of the interview, uh, what are you personally thinking about working on next and, and what do you see yourself next taking on? Well, I was waiting for this question because yeah. <laughs> I'm really excited about my new projects. Yeah, sure. I have two new projects, actually. Wonderful. Yeah. So you're not you're you're not going to, you know, publish the book and then, you know, take a nice long five year vacation. You're 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 on to the next thing. No, and these are community collaborative projects, so yeah. the communities are holding me accountable. The first actually is is um, tied to this project. It's um, a tribal history, uh, and I'm, I'm hoping to write a visual history of the Ho-Chunk Nation in the 20th century based on two extraordinary photographic collections of um, 
of my um, my ancestors, and they were taking me to roughly 1879 all the way to the 1960s. And my goal with that is to really pose the question: Is what would a history of the Ho Chunk Nation look like if, con- if conceptualized through um, the medium of photography? And so um, that I'm also drawing upon an amazing. Um, um, video or uh, film of the Stand Rock Indian Ceremonial, which um, was a major tourist attraction in Wisconsin Dells, where my parents actually met. Um, And so um, this is part of one of those collections as well. So that's the first project is writing a a history of the Ho-Chunk Nation through these two extraordinary um, archival um, photographic collections. And then the second is I'm working with um, Sandy Whitehawk, who started an organization called the First Nations Repatriation Institute that helps Native Americans who were adopted out of our communities in the middle part of the um, 20th century, um, well, to the present, help them reclaim their place in our communities. And the history of the fostering and adoption and removal of Native children during this period is not well documented in the historical record. And so I'm conducting oral histories with these adoptees and mothers who placed children up for adoption during this period um, to write a history of what happened during that time period. Those sound like really wonderful and important topics. And and please come back on the program uh, the next time you publish anything. It's been a wonderful conversation. I'd love to talk to you again uh, and put it out there for our listeners. So thank you very much, Dr. Lone Tree. Thank you, Andrew. And I just want to offer that I feel connected to this podcast because when I was writing Decolonizing Museums, after I would do my four or five writing shifts a day, I would uh, go out for a run and I would always listen to your podcasts whenever they were available. And um, you're really providing an excellent service to the field. So thank you very much. That is uh, incredibly gratifying to hear. And I thank you for that. And I promise now that I'm finished with my master's thesis, I will be on a much uh, more regular publishing <laughs> podcast clip. I've taken a couple months off here. And um, it's, it's good to know that someone's out there missing it. So uh, yes. starting with this interview, I'm, I'm, back, uh, I'm back in full swing. So Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to an interview with Amy Lone Tree, author of Decolonizing Museums, representing Native America in national and tribal museums from the University of North Carolina Press. We're on the web at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com, where you can listen to all the past podcasts. You can also find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. We have a lot of really exciting books coming up. Joe Geneton, Pilawa's Crooked Paths to Allotment, Scott Berg's 38 Nooses, a whole lot more. So stay with us. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein, and I hope you join us again next month for another new book in Native American Studies. Thanks. <laughs>